Tonight is October 26th, 2016. The title of tonight's message is Anointed and Waiting. Anointed and Waiting. Um, somewhere between me being asleep this morning and being fully awake. You know that space of time? You're kind of cognizant. Then you can kind of fall asleep for a few more minutes and then you're, then you're kind of awake again. Somewhere in that span of time, I, I felt like the Lord spoke to my heart about the anointing. And again, I, the Lord is speaking to me and I'm going, okay, Lord, what is it that you want? How, how, is this for our One Association meeting? Is this for our people tonight? So I'm kind of trying to figure it out as I'm, as I'm becoming fully awake. Uh, and what I, what I wanted to share to you today and tonight is a little bit of what God shared upon my, uh, laid upon my heart. I, I like it when he does it. I hope this makes sense. Um, it's something that was just coming to me as, as throughout the day. Um, one of the things I want to start off with, we're actually going to start off with a little paleo here. Just jump right in. The Hebrew word 4886 is Massah. And what it is, is we're going to look at the paleo here. So I'm going to go now from right to left. So the Mem, a Shin, and a Chet. Okay? So these are, these are the words, uh, these are the letters that are here. So it's supposed to be water, which represents mighty, or blood, or chaos. So I'm going to say mighty here. These are supposed to remind us of two front teeth. So it's a, a pressing to eat, a sharp, something like that. But the word we're going to use here is press, to press in or pressing. And this is supposed to remind us that there's a division to divide or make in half. Um, what we have here is that we're going to have a mighty pressing that causes a division. The word here is to anoint. Is that right? That looks really funny from here right now. Okay, amen. I'll, I'll trust you guys that it's right. Amen, I'm going to leave it right there. If it's not right, then y'all fix it on your page. Amen. To anoint. And really, when you're looking at this word, it, it's some interesting things. It's anoint, or it's to smear, or even I saw one translation in one uh, Bible dictionary that put it as to paint. Right? So when we talk about anointing here, we often we have a, an anointing oil that we use. We usually put a little bit of it on our hands as a sign, Lord, this is something that you have asked us to do, to lay our hands to with anointing oil. God, we want you to pay attention to what we are now praying over. It's a symbol. But what we normally don't do is smear it, pour it on your head until it's dripping down all over you. right? But this is really a closer representation to what it is. And what this helps us to do is when you've got an anointing on your life, you know what it does? It actually divides you from other things. It's supposed to divide you and your life and what's going on there from other things and other uses. This is special. I just got my Bible back from the, from the bindery. And, and the, the most important thing that I'm trying to figure out is this, this plane ride that I have tomorrow morning is where this is going to go. Everything else, I'm like, look, I'll go buy more clothes. I'm not, I'm not even worried about that. It's where can I put this so it doesn't get messed up until I can get there? 
right? Because it's precious. It's been set apart. It's something that's valuable to me. It's something that's been set apart. And in this case, we're going to talk about this anointing. You know what the, the idea of pressing here reminded me, and I'm not going to go through it now, but you can go back and listen to different teachings we have about the different types of pressings that went on in an olive press. You guys remember some of those? The very first pressing. Just the weight of the olives themselves in these old, uh, um, ancient stone vats that they would put. They would put bag after bag or olives after olives on top of each other. And what you get is you get the first pressing, which was for the anointing oil. An anointing oil. Something that was pure. The next, when you started to add more and more weight to it, the second pressing that would happen is you'd get, you'd get uses that were more for household uses. Then the third pressing, you'd add more weight to it yet still, and, and things would still be working out. And it was things for cooking and even animal uses. And then the fourth was really just as a fire starter. What happened in the average pressing there was this, is that this one was the most pure. It was designed to be used in the tabernacle. It was the most clean. There was not any fleshiness that came through. Right? And as it went down, the more the weight came out, the more flesh would come out. Doesn't, isn't that exactly what happens in our life? <laughs> you might be able to respond okay on, on time number one. You might be okay to respond when you're fully, when you're fully uh, rested and, and things have been going well and something happens and maybe you respond really well. Maybe you respond really well when the presence of God is here and it comes out of you. But what happens when it keeps coming time and time again and more and more weight gets added? You know what usually happens with, well, let's be real, what happens with all of us is that more and more of the fleshiness of the pulp starts to come out, doesn't it? Are, are y'all with me tonight or not? We're not doing this just because we have to do this. We're doing this because we're going to go somewhere in the Lord. Amen? Amen. We're going to have a great evening together. The Lord is going to show us things. Not because I'm anything, because He cares about enough about you guys that He literally woke me up with some thoughts this morning. Amen. I, he's just good like that. Amen? So we have these different pressings that go on. You know what we learned about Jesus, though? We learned in the Garden of Gethsemane, it didn't matter which pressing was there because no flesh came out of Him. It was pure anointing oil, pure anointing oil, pure anointing oil, pure anointing oil every time. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. There was no flesh that arose in him that, that polluted what was going on. That is, our, <laughs> that is the type of mighty pressing that we're desiring. It will divide us from those around us. It will divide what we do as a church from those around us. Amen? Amen. Another thought that came to mind, and then we're going to get into... Um, let's turn to Exodus 29 first. Let's turn to Exodus 29. Say there when you are there. Anointed and waiting. Exodus 29 starting in verse 1. Say there when you're there. This is what you are to do to consecrate them. Everybody say consecrate. So they may serve me as priests. Take a young bull and two rams without defect. And from fine wheat flour without yeast, make bread and cakes mixed with oil. And wafers spread with oil. 
put them in a basket and present them in it along with the bull and the two rams. Then bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meetings and wash them with water. Everybody say wash. Wash. Or if you're from Louisiana and from my relatives, you got to wash. Wash them, right? I don't know how an R got in there, but that's the way my family always said it. You got to wash it, right? Take them, Aaron, bring them and wash them with water. Take the garments and dress Aaron with the tunic, the robe of the ephod, the ephod itself and the breastpiece. Fasten the ephod on him by its skillfully woven waistband. Put the turban on his head and attach the sacred diadem to the turban. As I'm reading this, I can't help but think of the armor of God, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the waist girt about with truth. Verse 7, take the anointing oil and Massah, anoint him by pouring it on his head. Does that sound like you just put a little dab there? You're going to pour it on Aaron's head. Bring his sons and dress them in tunics and put headbands on them. Then tie sashes on Aaron and his sons. The priesthood is theirs by a lasting ordinance. In this way, you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. You know what this entire discussion made me think about was this as well. In Judges chapter 9, we don't have to turn there, I'm just going to summarize it for you. This comes directly from Judges 9. There's a, a story that's given, and it's, it's, this, uh, it's basically a parable that we see in the Older Testament. It's the, this idea, they said, you went to the trees, and you asked them to become your king. First of all, you went to the olive tree. And said, would you become our king? And the olive tree said to them, no, I won't. I'll keep my anointing oil. And then what happened is he went to a fig tree. Same thing happened. Then we went to a vine. Same story happened. And then to the thorn bush, to the thorn tree. Right? And what we were realizing was that they were going down and this story was supposed to teach them, you didn't want true relationship with God. You didn't even want a religious covering. The fig tree always represents a religious form of Israel. The vine, the national. You couldn't even get into a nationalistic perspective on this. What you did was you raised up for yourself a leader who was full of thorns, who was ungodly in every possible way. And they went on. The olive to the fig to the vine to the thorn. If I stop for just a minute, it's hard for me not to think of our current situation in our, in our country. It, it's hard for me not to think this, that we've, we've, we've neglected any type of pure anointing olive, an olive oil, an olive tree. We've, we've long since done with that. The fig tree, at least before the good old days, I don't know when the good old days are, right? But they're never now. They're always back then somewhere. The truth is, is our country has been ungodly for a very, very long time. Yes, do you agree? But what we had was we had some fig leaves before. You had a morality in our country that said, well, at least there was... What, what, could, what my dad could do and walk up to you and have a handshake and that be as good as a contract. For, for all of you uh, youngins in here, that's literally how contracts used to be done. If you ever got before the judge, the judge would say, did you say that? Well, yes, sir, I did, but wait a minute. You said it. Did you shake on it? Yes, sir, we did. Well, then it's done. Get out of my court. 
right? Now we've, uh, we've long since lost our justice. Now we're just, we have courts of law. We don't have courts of justice anymore, right? We've gone through even a nationalistic perspective here. We now have government officials who are apologizing for, for what our country is. What we need to be doing is repenting to the Lord for what we are. Because what we have now is... <laughs> whether you want to vote red, blue, green, yellow, right? What we have now is we have choices between a thorn and a thorn. And other little thorns that are on the ballot as well. That's what we have. It's amazing that the Word of God actually sets it out exactly the way it's supposed to be. In this case, he was talking directly to the nation of Israel. These symbols are national symbols for Israel. And yet... I see, we can see how it applies to us, right? Let's turn to Leviticus chapter 8. Leviticus chapter 8. And let's start in verse 10. We read this just a few weeks ago with the Vincents. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle. Well, there's interesting, something interesting. He anointed the tabernacle and everything in it and so consecrated them. He sprinkled some of the oil on the altar seven times, anointing the altar and all its utensils and the basin with its stand to consecrate them. Anointing and consecration are always together. He poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Then he brought Aaron's sons forward, put tunics on them, tied sashes around them, and put headbands on them as the Lord had commanded Moses. Let's turn to Psalm 45. Psalm 45. What does it look like for this anointing? And let's look at verse 7. Psalm 45 7 says this, You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions. By the way, the first part of this verse, this is part of what my new prayer lately has been. Just to share from very personal parts of my heart. Lord, I want to love righteousness and I want to hate wickedness. I don't want just one or the other. I don't want to be a person who learns to hate wickedness and not love righteousness. Because this I see much more than just this verse, but it, it reminds me of that. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the what? The oil of joy. <laughs> He's, he can smear you with it. When you love and hate the way you're supposed to, when you can do both appro appropriately, you are covered you are anointed god himself god your god will set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy it lifts you up in this turn to isaiah chapter 61 very familiar isaiah 61 just laying groundwork here guys laying some groundwork we're going to get to it here in just a second isaiah 61 and let's read verse 1 The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. i got to tell you something that sometimes I get guilty of. I get guilty sometimes of reading Scripture 
and the more familiar the passage, the more my brain quickly goes, oh, yeah, I know that one. And I, and I don't let it sink in when I hear it. I just, I'm going to read this to you, and I know that everyone in here, many of you could quote this scripture. Right? But what I want you to do is just let this sink in for a minute. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Next verse. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And it goes on into some of the most beautiful passages. I actually remember reading this as a nine-year-old when they asked me to speak on Mother's Day in the church that I grew up in. And I remember as a nine-year-old, I don't know why they asked me to be on stage, because that was just, because what I did was I got to these next few verses, and I literally just cried. Those of you who know me, that's like, you're like, that's not that hard to believe, right? I was just so overwhelmed by the beauty of what God does in our lives. How He will exchange our ashes and give us the crown of beauty. And on through this. But here, we're looking at verse 1. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Everybody say, is on me. Man, if you can't say that about your life, that the Spirit of the Lord is on you, that God has come upon you, not only has He come upon you, but He has come in you and indwells you now, Man, this, this, is worth, this is worth life itself right here. This is worth us going after with all that we have. Because the Lord has anointed me to do something. Went and got, uh, Gabe and I went and got a haircut today, getting ready for our trip. Right? We went and the lady that, I, that, we, that was cutting our hair was from New Orleans, Louisiana. I was like, yeah, you are. Come on, man, Sha, how you doing? From down to Bayou, huh? She's like, oh, yeah. Sorry, I said, from down to Bayou. I'll, I'll have the, the little, you know, translation here for you. But, and so we just talked about, we talked about Hurricane Katrina, how she was there, and they moved to Houston the day before Hurricane Katrina. So we were just talking, and you know what we ended up talking about? Basically this verse. Hey, what has God created you for? I don't know. Oh, well, let's talk about that for a few minutes. We started, because we started just talking. Started talking about travel. She likes to travel. I told her we're about to go on a trip. Gabe and I told her about a mission trip to Africa we took a few months ago. And we had such a good time, but you know what we were trying to do? We were trying to get her to go, hey, the Lord has anointed you for something. He's, he's got, there's a purpose in you, and if you are a follower of Him, He'll help you to fulfill your purpose. And if you're not, well, let's start there. Amen. I want to show you guys, as we go through this, as we go through anointing, right? Anointed and waiting is the title of tonight's message. Would you turn to 1 Samuel 16? 1 Samuel 16. One of the most anointed people in the Bible. One of the most anointed people that I could think of was King David. Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 16. Let's start in verse 1. Is everybody there? The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? If 
you think back through in 1 Samuel 15, we see them, uh, one of the saddest pictures in the whole Scripture. Saul blatantly disregards what the Lord is saying. We learn in 1 Samuel 15 that obedience is better than sacrifice. That obedience is better than sacrifice. We get here and Saul has been mourning. Uh, Samuel has been mourning over Saul. The Lord said to Samuel, verse 1, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? How long are you going to mourn over some things that God is trying to remove from your life? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. <laughs> Wake up. Shake it off. Get up. Fill your horn. Fill your strength with something that comes from the heavenlies. Get anointed here and move on your way. Don't stay where you were. Don't stay lamenting all the things that have happened to you. Perhaps it was just the Lord separating you from things. And what he's doing is saying, it's time for you to move on. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. If you continue to mourn and lament, you miss the anointing of something new in your life. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. Uh, by the way, Lord, uh, um, Saul's still king. You're wanting me to anoint a new king here? This could create a little problem. I've got some difficulty going on here. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. By the way, all of our um, problems that we want to show the Lord of why we can't obey exactly what he said, I promise you he's got a way for you to do that. If he's told you to do something, there is a righteous and a right way for you to do it. Don't sit around and figure out all the reasons that you cannot do Exactly what you know that God just told you to do. That was good. Maybe y'all don't ever do that. I do that sometimes. I try to think through it in my mind and I'm like, well, that would be a little bit difficult. Lord, you clearly said this and that might require something of me more than I want to give in this moment. Yes, yes, it will. It always will. It has to. Samuel did what the Lord said. Amen. When he arrived at Bethlehem, Oh, wow. The elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, um, do, do, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he, Samuel, consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? The heart. He always looks at the heart. He always does. And it's amazing. This was, this was written, oh, let's just say it's 1100 for argument's sake. Let's say it's 1000 B.C. So this was written... 3,000 years ago. Do you know what mankind still does? Do you know what? Let's, let's not make it so broad. Do you know what you and I still have a tendency to do? Is to look at things and assess them by our natural eyes. We look at someone and either think they're approved or we disapprove of them very quickly. 
We look at a situation and we do it by our natural mind. We look at resources that we have and we do the calculations in our head and we either approve of what's going on or disapprove based on the external forces that we can conceive of and that we can perceive. Yes or no? Is that true? And God is saying here 3,000 years ago, put it in the Holy Scripture for us, man looks at the outward appearance. Yes, yes we do. But God, He looks at the heart. We go through, and he continues on through each brother. Skip on ahead and verse, uh, let's look at verse 10. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Now the man of God came into town, told Jesse to bring all his sons to this event. He passes through seven sons. Son number one. Ooh, he's good looking. Nope, not the one. How about number two? Nope. Seven. Nope. Put yourself in Samuel's shoes for just a second. God just told me to come here because I'm supposed to anoint the next king of Israel. Um, so, these all the sons you got? Kind of feels like a dumb question, doesn't it? Apparently it's not. There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. You didn't even bring all your sons. You left the youngest one just out watching the sheep. Samuel said, send for him and we will not sit down until he arrives. How about we have something different about us that says, Lord, we're going to stand and wait for your answer. I'm not going to go get comfortable. Not going to plop down on the couch and start flipping through Facebook. Not going to put on a Netflix binge. Not going to go grab a drink. I'm just going to stand here, Lord, until you answer me. How much better would our lives be if we just adopted that one little small phrase and just went, Lord, I know that you have an answer coming and I'm going to stand on the inside. If this takes days, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stand my post until I hear you answer me because you have an answer coming and I can't wait for it. I'm looking forward to your answer. I... It's coming. I know. I don't even know what it's going to look like yet. He didn't know what David looked like. I don't know what this is. I don't know how this is going to manifest before my eyes. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stand until God's answer get here. That's for somebody here. I just wanted to share that. So he sent him and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. You know what? The God's, the problem was not the ruddiness and the handsome features. What was the problem earlier in this story? It was the problem that it was a heart issue and he was looking only at the external. When Samuel came in and Lyab came, like, oh, surely this is the one. David's a good-looking guy. But what the issue was is there was a heart that was completely devoted to him. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David, kind of, maybe slightly noticeably. What does it say? How did he come upon him? From that day forward, the Spirit came in power upon David. What we have here in 1 Samuel 16 is we have an anointing. That he was anointed. Amen? Amen. It was clear. Um, I, I was trying to figure out an age of what David may have been. Do you know what the, the ranges in, in Bible uh, study helps that I got? Anywhere from 15 
to 25. 15 to 25. Okay? Let's just go on the lower end. I, I understand why they picked the numbers they do. Let's, let's just go on the lower end. We're going to find out here in a minute how long he had to wait. Anointed and waiting. Anointed. Spirit of the Lord came upon him from that day forward in power. He had been marked by the presence of God. Something was different about him. But you know what he had to do? He's anointed to be the king. We're going to go through a couple of steps here before we actually see him be the king. There is a distance from when you are anointed to do something until the time that it is realized. That you are starting and you're having to work some things out in you. You're having to work some things out in what you can do and your faithfulness and what God can trust you with until the time between this anointing and when you are walking in your calling, folks. Let's take a look at 17. You know what happens in chapter 17? He has to face Goliath. (laughs) Hold up a minute. He's anointed. He's walking in power. Yay! Amen! Woo! Yay for David! Now, Goliath. Bam! Right? Isn't this always the case, though? We have to learn how to deal with enemies. Every one of them. We have to learn how to defeat the most gigantic, (laughs) crazy big problems in our life. You know what you have to do? You have to get anointed, and then you have to start learning how to deal with your enemies. The ones that are just too big that you can't, you think cannot possibly fall. You know what our world this day tries to do? Is even when they're referencing this story of David and Goliath, they try to start nowadays, they're trying to give medical conditions for why Goliath wasn't really that hard to beat. <laughs> there are books that you can get. And they're telling how really Goliath had like a giganticism. There's these disorders, so he was blind. He couldn't move. He had no strength in him whatsoever. Never mind that he, he had to carry a spear that weighed 18 pounds. I mean, forget all that kind of stuff. Forget that he was the chief warrior of the Philistines. Let's, let's just forget all that. But let's, what, what are we always trying to do? We're trying to say, yeah. What does the world always want to do to you? Say that, you know that enemy that you beat? Yeah, it really wasn't that big of a deal. It's always trying to take the victory out of our victories. But what we have to do is you're anointed, and then you have to learn how to deal with your enemies. This is 1 Samuel chapter 17. What happens after the enemy? For the next, oh, I don't know, 10 chapters or so, you know what happens is we get a picture into Saul's life. We get a picture into the interaction. He's anointed, David is anointed king. He starts to deal with with. His enemies, starting with Goliath. And then what happens? He gets to a place where he's working for Saul, King Saul, and Saul tries to kill him. Saul tries to kill him. You know what I I realized this was? This was us having to learn how to deal with authority in our life. How, How do you do with authority in your life? How are you doing with that? The people that are over you. If you think that your boss is the devil. Or at least sent by him. <laughs> you, will, you will not ever get sympathy from me for that. 
Because what I know is I don't care how anointed you are. You know what you're going to have to learn how to do? You're going to have to learn how to defeat the Goliath in your life. I don't care how anointed you are. Praise God. I have no problem wanting you. I want you to be anointed. But you know what I know that you're going to have to learn how to do? Is handle authority properly. Especially if you think that they're unfair to you. Especially in that case. If, yes, you're all much smarter than your bosses. I get it. Oh, maybe, that, maybe, maybe that's just the way I, I felt. If only they would listen to me, everything would be fixed in this company. Well, amen. You know what? It's not your company. You know what God is more interested in? <laughs> They're trying to kill me. What kind of person assigns me these type of hours? They're trying to kill me. No, what God is trying to do is work out in you an understanding of how to deal with your authorities. If you cannot deal with authority, you will never be able to find the palace. Enemies, you've got to defeat sin at every turn. You've got to defeat those that are coming. And you also have to learn how to work under authority. David was in the palace. He was playing music for the king. The king would pick up a spear and hurl it at him. Whoosh! continue to play the lyre and the harp, right? How do you do when that happens? Can you do what David did? As a young man, let's just say now he's in his 20s. He's sitting there. He's worshiping the Lord. And as he's worshiping the Lord, spears fly at his head. Not figuratively. I mean actual spears. Actual weapons of warfare flying at him while he's playing his guitar. How would you do with that? What happens when Saul starts chasing him and David runs? And David finds places in a cave and he realizes that Saul is in the same cave. And he goes out and he doesn't kill Saul, which he could. He cuts the corner of his garment. Do you remember how David responded? He was stricken with conviction. I should not have touched the Lord's anointed. I was wrong in what I did. How many of us are okay with not only cutting off the corner of a leader's garment, but just skewering them, roasting them? How are you when Pastor Matt wants to, uh, is given by the Lord to help encourage you with some correction? How are you if Pastor Eric says, How are you if Elder, how are, how are you? How do you do? Let's go ahead and be grown-ups and let's actually think about our lives and say, how do you do? Do you complain? Do you want to pass the buck of responsibility? Do you want to say and find every other reason than just to say, golly, I was wrong. I was wrong in what I did and I was wrong in how I responded to the authority in my life. Getting quiet. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 30. 1 Samuel 30. You know what you should do? You should welcome when people in your life correct you. If you cannot yet welcome, you are not yet mature enough. Mature enough for what? I don't care. That's the wrong question to ask. 
You ever, you ever get, those of you who are parents, you have your kid and they just, they're asking the wrong question? But what about, but what about, no, that's just the wrong question. It's just the wrong question. <laughs> right, Ms. Valerie? You, you know what I'm talking about. 1 Samuel chapter 30, let's look at verse 1. <clears throat> David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Everybody say third day. The Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it, and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both young and old. They killed none of them. Huh. The enemy of the Lord, in this case, killed none of the people. But they burned the city and took the people and carried them off as they went on their way. (laughs) Sounds just as they went on their way. When David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud, listen to this next phrase, until they had no strength left to weep. There's been very few times in my life that I can even think of that I wept like that. I had no more strength to weep until your eyes were, you're just dehydrated, you have no more fluid left to cry. This is the state of the people here. Verse 4, so David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured. Ahinoam, her name means uh, pleasantness or brother of pleasantness of Jezreel and Abigail. If you've been through our marriage teachings, Abigail is a very central figure in what we do with our marriage counseling. Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Ahinoam means pleasantness or brother of pleasantness. Abigail means my father rejoices. You know what they stole from David? His pleasantness and what makes him rejoice. They tried to get at him, but you know what they were attacking here? They literally attacked him at the family level. When you're anointed, you know what you're going to have to learn how to do? You're going to have to learn how to face the enemy and defeat the enemy. Chop its head off. Not just the stone that knocks it down, but you're going to take its sword and you're going to lop off its head. You know what you have to learn how to do after that? You have to learn how to deal with authority. You're going to have to learn how to deal with it rightly. You know what you have to do? And it's going to come up in every one of our lives. You're going to have to learn how to deal with your family and to fight for your family. Sometimes to fight against your family. (laughs) Whatever it may be, we have to learn how to rightly deal with our family. You have to learn how to build your family. You have to learn how to protect your family. You have to learn how to establish your family. Why is that important? Because everything we do as believers, it should come from our home. A husband and wife, that relationship outside of your relationship with Christ is what sets the tone. If, you, if you're anointed in any way, what you're going to have to learn how to deal with is family. Let's see how he dealt with it. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Say, man, we're going to fight for you. I, I went and fought for you, and now look what happened. I fought for you, and I lost my wife and my kids. My house has been burned down. You know what? We're going to take it out on you, David. 
Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and his daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. <laughs> hundreds, of, hundreds of people around him saying, yeah, we are so angry at you, we literally could kill you right now. David is standing there encircled by 600 men or so. And he goes, Hey, man. I don't know what's going what's to come of this, but I can, I can strengthen myself in the Lord. You know why? Because you strengthening yourself in the Lord has nothing to do with your external circumstances. Well, I would strengthen myself in the Lord, but you don't understand my job. I don't care what job you have. <laughs> well, you see, but I don't have a job. I don't care what job you don't have. I, but you don't know the difficulties. I don't have to know the difficulties. What I can look at you and say is, strengthen yourself in the Lord. How about you stand up and take some responsibility in the kingdom for your own actions? How about we actually be grown-ups? That's the way I say it. (laughs) Actually, that person is an actual (laughs) grown-up. And by that, I usually mean that they can take care of themselves. They know what they need. They can strengthen themselves in the Lord. Then David said to Abathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. Pastor Eric spoke on this just recently. Abathar brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? David went and cried out to God. He strengthened himself. He got enough about himself. He collected himself, strengthened himself in the Lord as God, and then said, Okay, God, what do you want me to do now? Uh, Can can I go after these people? Are you going to let me win this? The Lord said to him, pursue them. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. Take a look down at verse 18. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing. Everybody say nothing. Nothing Nothing was missing from him. (laughs) He understood and he didn't lose one, not only one of his family members, but he didn't lose anybody in the family that was associated with him. This is, this is a miraculous event that shows that the anointing is there, but it comes out not only in how we deal with our enemies, not only how we deal with authority, but also how we deal with our family. There should not be one. That should be your prayer. You should be more uh, uh, awake than this right now. What about your family? Do you have something that you need to go after? Lord, will you allow me to pursue this? Can I go after this or not? Yes, go after it. Pursue them. You will overtake them. Amen. Let us get this place in right order. My uncle, my mom, my dad, my granny, whoever. Go after it. Get it in order. Because I don't want one part of my family to be missing, to miss out. I have family members that are unsaved. I don't know about you. I have plenty of family members. I've been praying for them harder and harder lately than I ever have. Lord, at this point in, in the relationship... They either need to be so mad at me that they'll just never want to talk to me again or they need to come on into the kingdom. Like, Lord, can I go after them? And what the, what the call of my life is right now is go after them. Yes, sir. I'm going after them. Hey, y'all need to come over. Come visit us in Houston. I don't, I don't care how far that is. I don't care if you've got money. Come. Let's do this. I'm right here. You know where I am. Right? What do you need to do for your family? You need to strengthen yourself in the Lord and then inquire of the Lord what He wants you to do. That's what you need to do. Turn to 2 
Samuel chapter 1. Second Samuel chapter 1. You know what happens is right after the family... I just want to interject this part. Saul dies in a fairly embarrassing way. God dealt with Saul appropriately to what his sins had had done. Saul ends up killing himself. The king of Israel, the man who had been anointed and started prophesying and who had been changed into a different man because of the Spirit of the Lord, so relied on his own strength so relied on his own flesh, so relied on any other voice beside the Lord that the kingdom was torn from him, his life was torn from him. The guy who was, we talked about earlier, throwing spears at David, chasing him down with legions of men over years and years and years of time. Take a look at verse 23. These are David's words. Saul and Jonathan, 2 Samuel 1, verse 23. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and gracious. Really? Huh. And in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. David starts lamenting. Obviously, Jonathan and he had an incredibly strong connection. But you know what he doesn't do here? Is he does not throw Saul under the bus. He does not start speaking of the previous king of Israel in terms that were not becoming of the next king of Israel. The speech here, I'm taken aback by it. Because what it shows me is that David understood, because he was anointed, he understood who the enemy actually was. He had many times to kill Saul. Multiple times he was in, and Saul would have had no chance. I mean, he would have been annihilated. David's companions were like, the Lord has given him into your hands. He said, I'm not going to touch. I'm not going to touch him. I'm not going to do that. He understood the authority and he kept his heart pure before the Lord. (laughs) And he loved Jonathan like family. It's an incredible thing that we can see here. And and let's keep going on into chapter 2, verse 1. In the course of time. Everybody say, in the course of time. How long is that? I don't know. Some amount of time. In the course of time. Can I encourage you, the reason, some of the reason that you can't pinpoint exactly, we actually know exactly how old David was when he got anointed king of Judah. We know this. We're about to read it. We just can't exactly backdate it because it just gives you phrases like, in the course of time. Can I encourage you? In your, in the course of time, it always feels like you've just been abandoned. It always feels like you're David and you're like, uh, at least they're getting to get looked at to be anointed king. I wasn't even invited to the party. But how well you can handle these things determines where you go in the Lord. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah, he asked. The Lord said, go up. David asked, where shall I go? To Hebron. The Lord answered, So David went up there with his two wives. Yay, they're back. They're still with him. (laughs) Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David also took the men who were with him, each with his family. 
And they settled in Hebron and its towns. You know what David did? He settled where God led him. He settled. He, he, he put down stakes. He got comfortable right where God put him. He wasn't looking for the next thing. He just went there and said, this is where I am until God says something different. And then the men of Judah came to Hebron and there they anointed, they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Take a look at 2 Samuel chapter 3. So he becomes the king of Judah. He becomes the king of Judah. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. <laughs> How long is that? Long time. Like we quit counting. I have no idea. It's just a long time. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. If I, if I can uh, take this to a metaphor here for just a second before we go on, I'm trying to show you a pattern in the life of David that helps us to understand what anointing is going to look like. <laughs> there was anointing way back here, and years later we get to him being anointed king of Judah. The way that this is supposed to work is if you're really anointed and you really got God's presence in your life, the spiritual part of you is supposed to grow stronger and stronger. And that Saul part of you that wants to always be self-sufficient is going to grow weaker and weaker. And the way that it does that is you learn how to fight with every enemy that's put before you. I'll give you a little secret. A little musician's secret. Musicians will practice things that make them sound really, really good. They'll, they'll practice these little things so they can... When, if you go, oh... Let me, let me just pick up the guitar. Oh, I don't know if I can play anything. You're like, what? They have some cool, it's called a lick. You learn a lick. You learn a, a few things that in a, in a pinch, you just pull it out. You know why? Because you practice that like a madman. Because you just want to, you know, make it seem like, oh, it's no big deal. I'm just going to pull this out. Right? It's because they practice it like crazy. They may not be able to do anything else, but they'll be able to do that thing just incredibly well. Can I encourage you? It just takes practice to do some things. Do you know what it makes? It just takes practice for some things to look easy. There is not one person on the planet that just has it easier than you. Well, Pastor Eric can do Do you know what? Do you know how many times he's practiced praying for people? <laughs> do you know how many times he's practiced doing it the hard way to show God because God told him to go that way? Do you know how many times that Pastor Matt has done these things? Do you know how many times these people have done it? They've done it a gazillion times. That's why it looks like it's easy for them. It may not be easy, but they've practiced it an awful lot, and that one they can do. That, that chain of Scriptures, you know what you ought to do? You ought to work on it instead of just trying to go, well, I can't, I can't memorize Scriptures like that. Shame on you. That's ridiculous. You're trying to create an us and a them. They just can do it magically. The Spirit loves them more than they love me. Um, maybe they actually just read their Bible more than you do. Maybe they actually have note cards and actually work on it during the day. And they're serious about learning the Scripture. 
and then it sounds like it's just easy for them when it happens. You know why? Because they put in 100 hours of work. You're trying to put in five minutes, and you're like, well, I, I, do you have the note cards of scriptures that you want to learn or not? If you don't, that's a good place to start. You've got to, we've got to do these things so that we can get the skill. We want our spirit to grow stronger and stronger while our flesh grows weaker and weaker. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 5. I'm going to turn the corner here and, and wrap this up shortly. 2 Kings chapter 5. Starting in verse 1. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. All this time here. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a compact with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel. You know what happens here? He gets anointed. He learns how to deal with enemies. He goes on a long time of dealing with authority, of growing in skill, of being a, a skilled battle warrior. He learns how to deal with family. He's anointed Judas king. But you know what this means? That's not the fulfillment. That's not the total fulfillment of what God led him to do. That's only partial. What if he stops there? You know how long he was king? Of just Judah? Seven and a half years. What if he thought that was it? Well, God, I know you said you anointed me king over Israel, the whole country, but at least I got part of it. Hebron's a pretty nice city. <laughs> they anointed David king over all of Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king. And he reigned 40 years. Forty years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. <laughs> when you look at it back from this perspective, you're like, oh, that wasn't a terribly long amount of time. Let's just say he was 17 and he's 30 right here. 13 years it took him to get to this point. It takes time for us to become anointed and actually walking in what God has for us. Let's take a look. I'm gonna, let's turn to Psalm chapter 89. Psalm chapter 89. Y'all still with me? Psalm 89 and verse 19. Once you spoke in a vision to your faithful people, you said, I have bestowed strength on a warrior. Everybody say warrior. warrior. That wasn't everybody. Everybody say warrior. warrior. I have bestowed strength on a warrior. I have exalted a young man from among the people. I have found David my servant. With my sacred oil, I have anointed him. As you continue to read through this, the truth is is sometimes I get very lost because I, my mind starts going, is he talking about David 
or is he talking about Jesus? Is it talking about David or is it talking about Jesus? Look at verse 21. My hand will sustain him. Surely my arm will strengthen him. No enemy will subject him to tribute. No wicked man will oppress him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down his adversaries. My faithful love will be with him, and, though, and through my name his horn will be exalted. I will set his hand over the sea, his right hand over the rivers. He will call out to me, You are my Father, my God, the rock of my salvation. I will also appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. Are you, are you guys with me? This is King David. It is spoken to him. But can you see how this is also giving you a picture of exactly who Jesus is going to be? You know what I thought of was this. Let's turn to Luke 4. This was David. I wonder if there's a similar pattern that we can find in Jesus' life. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert. In Luke 4, we see that Jesus is anointed. He is full of the Spirit. Verse 2, where for 40 days He was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and at the end of those, He was very hungry. Immediately, Jesus gets tempted and tested by his enemy. Look at verse 5. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all of their authority and splendor. Huh. Take a look at verse 16. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. I love the fact that Jesus uses Isaiah 61 as his declaration statement. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To release the oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then He rolled up the scroll. Gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Can you, can you imagine that? Jesus. He, he reads from Isaiah 61. And then He sits down. Don't you know that everyone in the synagogue was like, the anticipation must have been just building and building. And what does he say? Verse 21, and he began by saying to them, I'm sorry, let's go back to 20. I skipped a part. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Well, I'm sure they were. It isn't amazing God has a, a, a way to get our attention, doesn't he? Sometimes silence is a great way to get our attention, isn't it? We want to always say things. As a, as a teacher, 
I learned something that was very antithetical. If the kids were getting louder and louder in the classroom, you know what I started doing? Getting quieter and quieter with my voice. If you can hear me, here's what I need you to do. Instead of just trying to battle with them, I used the silence and it would, they, would just, you could, they would literally physically just lean in. I was tricky like that. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. He had to learn how to deal with his family too. The people around him, the people that he grew up with. Jesus, <laughs> the pattern that we see in David's life, we see here with Jesus as well. Verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were fur furious when they heard this. They got up and drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. They <laughs> wanted to kill him. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. I, I have to be honest, I'm not quite sure exactly what that means. Do they all just freeze? <laughs> like, hey. Did he just walk and because of his authority and anointing? Was it some supernatural? It was definitely supernatural, but he just, whatever they were doing, they went from screaming and wanting to throw him off of a cliff to kill him. He just walked right through them. The things that we think are impassable and impossible. Jesus just walks right through them. Whatever you're going through and looking at, don't think that it's impassable. There's no way to, to pass here. Or that it's impossible. There's too many people and they want to kill me. If you've got Jesus with you, He'll just walk you through it. Amen? Turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Verse 1. John 12, 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived. By the way, this is John 12, 1, right? John chapter 11 is when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Okay, so we've just finished Lazarus being raised from the dead. Now this is the next chapter heading here. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. You know some of the other parallel passages of this? Talk about how it was poured on Jesus' head. How it was an anointing. They smeared him with it. They painted him with it. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor. I love the Bible. So clear. 
but because he was a thief. And he kept the money back. He used to help himself to what was put in it. Wow. Wow. We've got to be careful if we get the mentality that we can just help ourselves to just anything around. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. Do you guys remember this part of the story? I didn't. I had to read it today again, and I was like, oh, that's right. You know why you want to kill Lazarus too? Because everywhere Lazarus would go, everybody's like, isn't that the dude that was dead and is now, I mean, he's walking. I can see him. I can see this guy. He is a testimony. He is a dead man that now walks around. What kind of testimony are you? Do you have a Lazarus kind of testimony? No, man, I used to know Justin Linton. Y'all just don't know. He was a dead guy, but now he's alive. Man, he's a testimony everywhere he walks. He's become dangerous to the enemy because now anyone who knows him is like, dude, what's up with you? That is supposed to be what our testimony is. Verse 11, For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took the palm branches and went out to meet him. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the... Huh. Incredible. He gets anointed to be king. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Second Kings chapter 1. Let's start in verse... 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Sorry. I was, I was still focused on the Israel king part. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's start in verse 18. Guys, do you see this? If not even Jesus could escape the path, do you think you're going to escape the path? If... If God used for King David, did, did you read Psalm 89 with me? Do you see how favored this guy is? Do you see how anointed he is? And he's using words like, over the course of time, the, the battle between David's house and Saul's house lasted for a long time. Not even going to bother to put a term, uh, an actual specific amount of time on it. If you're anointed to do something, if the Lord has purposed you in your life, if you have been smeared and painted with His very presence, if you've been anointed to do something, you know what? These are the same and similar steps that we're going to have to go through until we can see the fulfillment of the promise. Until we can really radiate. Until we are reflecting the very King of all creation with our lives. This is where we're heading. 
Are you heading that direction? I am heading this direction with all that I have. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. But as surely as God is faithful, yes, He is, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in Him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, wait, what? No matter how many promises God has made, He can make a promise to Nolan, He can make a promise to Elder Charlie, He can make a promise to Buddy, He can make a promise to me, He can make a promise to Chloe, He can make a pro- no matter how many promises He's made. They are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. This is the exact cognate of this word here. It's the exact word in the Newer Testament. He has anointed us, set his seal of ownership upon us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Because when you're anointed, you've got to have His Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Guaranteeing you, sustaining you, showing that He's still with you. Because you know what? The time you get to your enemy and you're battling it out, you're like, "Uh, I don't think I can do this. Do you see the size of this enemy? He's a Goliath. This thing is going to take me down. I feel dumb standing next to it because it's so stinking big. Yeah, we've got the Spirit deposited in our hearts guaranteeing what is to come. God, this authority thing, I can't just seem to get a handle on it. I always want to say that it's my job that's the problem, but apparently every job I go to, it's the same problem. Maybe it's you. God, this whole family thing, Lord, I don't know how to get my family where they need to get. It seems more contentious than, than successful. I, I'm fighting people and I'm telling them the truth and here I am again and it's just, how many years am I going to do this? It might take you a long time. It might be over the course of time. But that's why we need His Spirit and His anointing to help us to continue on because there's a purpose for us. There's a place that we can get where we are fulfilling what God has called us to do. First John chapter 2, verse 20. 1 John 2, 20. <clears throat> 1 John 2, 20 says this, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. Turn to Revelation chapter 1 for our final scripture. To make sure that we went all the way through law, prophet, and writing, older, and newer, we look at Revelation chapter 1 and let's look at verse 4. There are actually a lot that I could have used for this, but I, I'm going to use this one. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Doesn't that remind you of Psalm 89? To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins. He's conquered the enemies. 
He's walking in authority. He is our family, those who do the will of the Lord, and He will accomplish His purpose in us. And He's made us to be a kingdom and priest. He's made us to be that. To serve His God and Father. To Him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Would you stand to your feet with me tonight?